Welcome to another episode of the podcast On Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. You can find On Becoming on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. Let me invite you to send any questions, comments, or suggestions for the podcast to OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. Just to be clear, I've given out the wrong email address in the last few episodes. My, my apologies. So let me state the podcast email again. It's onbecomingpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, I invite you to support the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. Your support is crucial to keeping the podcast going. Many thanks to those of you who've decided to support us. In the previous episode, I began by explicating the idea of the dispensing of existence. In effect, it has to do with whom can be included in a community. For the Chinese communists, those guilty of wrong thinking were given two years to reform their thought. The penalty for lack of reformation was death. Evangelicals don't normally kill those who are judged unworthy to be part of their community. In fact, for those who don't feel completely comfortable with the movement, it may be possible to hang out on the margins. Among other things, that's one of the main attractions of megachurches. You get to choose just how much involvement you like. You can slip in at the last possible moment and leave as soon as the service is finished. Yet if one wants to become an active member of the community, then certain beliefs and practices are de rigueur. One of the difficulties, though, is that such beliefs and practices are somewhat dependent on any given evangelical community. Further, I've been alive long enough to see that these things change over time. I've noted before that when I was growing up, the vast majority of evangelicals thought abortion was something best left to individuals to decide. I've also given the example of going to movies, playing cards, and using alcohol. When I was growing up, prohibitions against them were pretty strong, though not absolute. I remember people from my church in Texas talking about the various movies they had seen. By that point, even my parents had relaxed their standards on movies. Alcohol, however, was still a major taboo. And these prohibitions weren't just about the here and now. They were seen as highly determinative of where you'd end up once you died. The author and illustrator, Jack Chick, produced many small tracks that were like little Christian comic books, except they weren't funny. They were literally deadly serious. The one I best remember is titled, This Was Your Life. Just Google it for yourself and you can see. On page two, it shows a well-dressed guy standing near an expensive car, smoking a pipe, and presumably holding an alcoholic drink. I mentioned the well-dressed part because a student at the school where I taught actually said to one of my students that I was too well-dressed to be a Christian. That didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, though I think the underlying idea would have to be something like Christians shouldn't spend money on nice things, or dressing well is too worldly. But that's only the beginning of the story. In what follows, the guy is forced to watch something like a video of his life in which all the bad things he's ever done are replayed. He's smitten with guilt and repents, but it's too late. The book of life is opened and his name's not there, so he's thrown into hell. You might not think of evangelicals as terrorists, but terror is their main weapon. Perhaps I would have gone along with this way of thinking much longer, but something intervened. My parents encouraged me to become a short-term missionary during the summer when I was 18. 
Before I go any further, I should mention that my view today is that such trips are basically missionary tourism, which is somewhat of a scam. You go someplace exotic in order to help the people there, and your expenses are usually paid for by those who give money to support you. How much you actually help is open to debate, though I think the reality is that the people who go on these trips benefit much more than the people they are purporting to serve. Yes, I had to raise support, just like all evangelical missionaries. I ended up serving with the Greater Europe Mission as a worker at the Belgian Bible Institute. At that point in time, the Belgian popula population was 98.7% Roman Catholic. But as I've said before, evangelicals don't see Catholics as real Christians, which means they need to be converted. However, looking back, I realized that those few months I spent in Belgium determined the course of my life in profound ways, ways that at the time I could simply never have anticipated. For instance, partly as a result of that summer, I returned to Belgium to study philosophy, a choice that I'm very glad I made. And I've ended up sending at least 30 of my own students to study there. A number of them have finished their PhDs and now teach at a variety of colleges and universities. For my missionary assignment, I was given the task of painting window frames in a building that had been a monastery for French-speaking Jesuits. In terms of making a contribution to the cause, I was basically a failure. I had never painted anything before, and they basically gave me a brush and said, have at it. Have you ever tried to paint a window frame? It's very hard and exacting work. It's the kind of thing you'd need to do for a long time before you'd be any good at it. But what I learned about life that summer changed me deeply, and those effects have consequences even today. Although the school was run by American evangelicals, the culture was still Belgian. The rules for short-term missionaries were that we were not allowed to smoke or drink. But if you know anything about Belgian culture, you'll know that both of these things were, and still are, very common. The school was located just outside of the town of Leuven, which is where the university I subsequently attended is located. It's also where Stella Artois is brewed. That was back at a time in which Stella hadn't become internationally renowned. Although we weren't allowed to drink or smoke, knowing that people connected to the Bible Institute engaged in such activities changed my entire way of thinking about them. I had been told that these were things that good evangelicals didn't do. But it was clear to me that the Belgians working and studying there were just as serious about their faith as I was. Suddenly I was faced with the fact that true believers in another country didn't think such things mattered. I was even more shocked to discover that the Belgians thought that the amount of makeup worn by American women was not in keeping with being a good Christian. There's nothing more dis disconcerting to a religious believer than to find that other believers, that is, people who supposedly believe the same things you believe, have a very different view about what kind of behavior is acceptable. I would never have thought that wearing makeup could be considered an important indicator of one's true allegiance to Jesus. Equally, I'd never met evangelicals who thought smoking or drinking alcohol was acceptable. Those experiences changed my thinking profoundly. I now thought of those kinds of things as some kind of weird American hang-up, a view I still hold today. I should mention that I did have my first alcoholic drink there, a glass of Stella Artois. I still have the glass. Perhaps even more important, though, 
was the realization that many things I had always assumed to be important were now things that I realized were purely cultural. And that got me asking about whether the evangelical beliefs I'd grown up with were cultural too. I've mentioned before that visiting London that summer led to a major rethinking of the assumption that evangelicals were the true believers. I attended a service at Westminster Abbey and was shocked that the sermon was so orthodox that I could have imagined it being given at an evangelical church. Well, except for the length. It was only about 15 minutes, and I was used to sermons that often went 45 minutes or more. Of course, once you start wondering whether what you've grown up to believe is really true, all sorts of possibilities for rethinking those beliefs open up. Just to be clear, I had no doubts about the basics of the faith, nor did my time in Belgium caused me to rethink most of the beliefs I had imbibed from, say, Bill Gothard, which is unfortunate. I decided to major in philosophy at the evangelical college I attended. That decision produced some consternation on the part of my parents. It wasn't so much the, how are you going to get a job with a philosophy major part. Instead, it was the unease of studying a subject associated with losing one's faith. I don't think it had that effect at all. In fact, given that I was studying with evangelical professors who went out of their way to consider and explain how the various philosophies we studied connected to Christian faith, I found the experience to be mind-expanding without undermining my evangelical faith. Of course, it did cause me to have questions about things I hadn't previously questioned, but I never had the sense that somehow I was being led astray. Over time, I came to realize that students who had questions often ended up as philosophy majors, since philosophy courses were a place where it was safe to ask questions. In other words, they first had questions, and then they decided to study philosophy, rather than the other way around. I was able to study with the chair of the department, the person who had first taught philosophy at the school and was able to establish philosophy as a separate major. I didn't realize at the time just how difficult it had been for him to move philosophy from the Bible department and establish it as a major on its own. And there were other professors in the department who were excellent. For instance, I studied Kierkegaard with one of the leading Kierkegaard scholars. I became the TA for someone who became a lifelong friend. Most of what we studied was analytic philosophy, which is the dominant school of philosophy in the English-speaking world. However, I was able to take a course in which we read a lengthy and sympathetic review of Gadamer's Truth and Method. I remember thinking at the time something like this. I don't know who this Gadamer guy is, but whatever he's doing, that's what I'd like to study. I was also able to take a course in existentialism in which we read snippets of Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Heidegger, Sartre, and a few others. Between those two courses, I was sure that I wanted to study what I soon learned was called continental philosophy, the kind of philosophy done on the European continent. I can still remember a cold, rainy November Saturday afternoon sitting in the philosophy seminar room looking through a collection of five huge binders worth of graduate school information. You can probably imagine my surprise when I discovered a short pamphlet about philosophy at the University of Leuven. It soon became clear that Leuven had one of the best programs in the world for continental philosophy, and that's still the case. When I looked into a little more, I came to realize that studying there was virtually free. At that point, it was about $225 a year for tuition. Given that I was interested in going to graduate school to study philosophy, but not sure enough that this is what I wanted to do for my life, 
the chance to study at such a low cost was greatly appealing. I figured, I'll give this a go, and the worst thing can happen is that I'll study for a year in a beautiful city and decide that philosophy isn't for me. By the way, that very point was one reason I sent so many students to follow in my footsteps. They could see if graduate school in philosophy was something they wanted to pursue without spending a fortune. True, in the U.S., you could get a stipend for many graduate programs, but almost all of these required a commitment to finishing a Ph.D., something to which I wasn't ready to commit at all. During my time as an undergraduate, I started attending an Episcopal church. The rector of the church was truly evangelical, and the congregation consisted of many people associated with evangelicalism in one way or the other, such as people who taught at the school where I attended, or working for an explicitly evangelical organization. Upon arriving in Belgium, I immediately started attending the Anglican Church in Brussels, which had recently hired a very evangelical rector. That became what evangelicals would call my church home for my time there. While the preaching was very evangelical in nature, I found it fascinating that there was a bar in the basement. That's right. After the service, you could get your coffee or your draft beer. There was a steep learning curve to adjusting to Belgian education. As with all educational institutions, there were courses I was required to take that were just okay. None of them were terrible. But the majority were excellent. Many of the lectures were so good that they could have been accepted for publication. However, none of the courses had a syllabus, which meant you needed to figure out for yourself what you needed to do to pass the course. In most cases, there was just one text for the course, such as Aristotle's Metaphysics, Nicholas of Cusa's De Docta Ignorantia, Spinoza's Theological Political Treatise, Hume's An Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, Husserl's Logical Investigations, Heidegger's Being in Time. And the lectures both explicated these texts and became springboards for the professor's own thinking on the subject. To this day, I credit my professors with teaching me both how to read difficult philosophical texts and to give outstanding lectures. Although I had been given excellent instruction in philosophy at my evangelical college, the level of teaching at Leuven was first-rate. At this point, I should add that I ended up spending a year studying church history and theology at the school where my father was an administrator. Practically, that meant tuition was free, and I could live with my parents. Then, when I first went back to Belgium to study, I stayed at the Bible Institute, where I had worked. I was able to get a room there in exchange for five hours per week working in the library. I hadn't been able to save up all that much money, so living there essentially for free was a huge bonus. Moreover, I could get a simple but full hot meal there for just a little over a dollar. During that first year, I discovered a fellowship that I could apply for that would cover all of my expenses. I had to send the application to the Belgian embassy in Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, it got sent by boat mail rather than airmail, which means I missed the deadline by about a month. But then I discovered that one of the five people who had gotten one of these fellowships lived in the same apartment building as friends of mine from college. What are the odds of that happening? And he decided not to accept the fellowship. After some complicated back and forth, I ended up getting it, which allowed me to move to an apartment that I shared with a friend. One of the professors with whom I studied made the suggestion that for people pursuing a Ph.D., it might be best to remain single. That seemed like a good idea to me, and frankly, it would have been very difficult to have studied in Belgium and then Germany being married with a family. So all of that was put on hold, which was fine with me. 
I hadn't dated in high school. Remember, Bill Gothard insisted that dating was wrong, and then only went on a few dates in college. Not long after I arrived in Belgium, I met a very beautiful woman who was studying at the Bible school. My parents ended up visiting around that time, and they were truly taken with her. But I decided not to pursue that relationship for various reasons. At a certain point in my time there, I became friends with a guy from church. We ended up spending a lot of time together until something happened that really shocked me. At that point, I was living in a big house that was shared by a number of people. I came home one night and happened to speak to someone on the way back to my little flat at the back of the house. She was a friend, but she told me that Julia thought that I was a terrible fraud since I was dating a gay guy even though I was against homosexuality. As it turns out, I had never actually stated any particular views regarding homosexuality, but she had inferred them from where I'd gone to college. It wasn't the first time that she had made an unfounded inference. But the part that was so surprising was that I was utterly clueless that our relationship was perceived as sexual in nature. I can't remember how that relationship ended, though I can say with utter confidence that I didn't think I was gay. How could I have thought that, having been raised to think that homosexuality was among the worst possible sins? In other words, such a thought had never crossed my mind, and this experience had zero effect on my thinking. I simply assumed they were wrong. After I finished my master's degree, actually back then it was called the licentiate, I started to think that perhaps teaching philosophy would be a good way to spend my life. But I wanted to get some experience of teaching before making such a momentous decision. I wrote to the chair of the department where I'd studied to see if there might be an opening. I got a letter back to the effect that yes, there were some intercourses to teach, but not enough for a full-time job. But that was perfect. I ended up moving back to the States, living with my parents once again, and teaching those intros, plus a course titled Religion in America at another school. Remember, I studied church history, so that wasn't really difficult. And a couple of courses at the local community college. The course on religion was for nurses who wanted to get their BA in order to make more money. In other words, they had zero interest in actually learning anything, but all expected an A for doing basically nothing. I remember giving them a quiz over a chapter on the Puritans. There were two questions. One was, who were the Puritans? For that question, I would have accepted answers like, they had shiny buckles on their shoes, or they wore funny hats. But the students all agreed that this was way too demanding. I came to the place where I thought, if this is the sort of student I'd be teaching, I'd rather do something else. The community college situation was more mixed. There was a retired mortician who dropped the course as soon as he discovered that he'd actually have to do some reading. But there were other students who were bright and inquisitive, and one student was so good that I encouraged her to major in philosophy. But what kept me going were the students at the school where I had studied. They were serious and a joy to teach. From the very first day, I knew that teaching was something I liked, and even better, something that I was good at. By the end of the year, the chair of the department was begging me to stay. However, I knew too many people who had begun full-time teaching without having finished their dissertation, and so I realized that this was really not a good idea. I ended up going back to Belgium for another year, but then got invited back to teach full-time with the added incentive that I could devise and teach whatever courses I wanted. Just to be clear, 
allowing a PhD student to teach whatever he or she likes is extremely rare in the academic world. I couldn't turn such an offer down. That year proved even better than the previous one, and I knew I was hooked on teaching philosophy. Fortunately, toward the end of that year, I was awarded a Fulbright to study in Germany. I had already met Gadamer the year before, when he was 89 years old. Studying in Germany allowed me to spend a lot of time with him. What most impressed me was his openness to new ideas. Let me clarify that. At this point in his career, Gadamer was clearly the preeminent philosopher in Germany. Uh, kind of amusing anecdote, this city of Bonn, which was the capital then, gave him a parade for his 95th birthday. Yes, an entire parade for a philosopher. But Gadamer didn't act like he was the premier philosopher. When I first met him, after we got beyond the usual pleasantries, he asked me, so, Herr Benson, tell me about your work. If you know anything about German professors, you realize that such humility is normally absent. And Gadamer's question wasn't simply his way of being polite. He really wanted to know what I was working on, and we ended up having a remarkable conversation and many good conversations after that. By the time I got the Fulbright, my German was good enough so that we could speak entirely in German. I still remember a relatively famous American philosopher who also had a Fulbright that year coming into the office while Gadamer and I were talking. Gadamer immediately switched to English, which surprised me since this was someone you would have expected to have already mastered German. I was so impressed that someone who was world famous and in his early 90s was still interested in learning. By the way, you might find it interesting to know that Gadamer was born in 1900, which means he remembered the sinking of the Titanic, World War I, World War II, and he was still alive for 9-11. He died in 2002. I ended up getting two years' worth of Fulbright support. The director of the Fulbright program had said to me that getting a Fulbright was very difficult and getting a second year was considerably more difficult. But I was able to present the case that since I was working on a phenomenology of music, I needed to spend time with the musicologist Hermann Danuser, who was the world expert on musical performance, which was more or less the focus of my dissertation, namely the question of what does it take to turn a musical score into a piece of music. That Danuser taught in Freiburg was a particular treat, since it's a beautiful city, and I remember many hikes and bike rides in the Black Forest. After that, I headed back to Belgium to finish and defend my dissertation. The invitation to return to my undergraduate college was still there, though there was a brief period in which it was in doubt. It was only much later that I came to realize that while I was away, a well-known Christian philosopher had visited the campus, and the department had asked what he thought of them hiring someone to teach continental philosophy, particularly postmodern continental philosophy. He warned them that this could be a dangerous thing to do, since he had grave questions about the value of postmodern philosophy. I probably should have realized from that comment that going back to teach, among other things, postmodern philosophy might turn out to be dangerous for me too. But the department chair, who was clearly my foremost advocate, realized that students were really interested in studying continental philosophy, and I seemed like the obvious candidate, given how well things had gone. Still, I well remember a meeting with the chair and another professor in which I was admonished against what was, in effect, being too popular with students. I remember thinking at the time, 
How am I going to control that? Still, it made me realize that I needed to be careful. But I still didn't realize just how precarious my position was. On the one hand, I was extremely popular with students. That was encouraging, though in the academic world, being too popular can actually promote jealousy among your colleagues. But not long after returning, I discovered that one of the guys who taught me church history at the seminary where my father taught was not so secretly meeting with the president of my school to convince him that I needed to be fired. Among the many philosophers I was teaching was Nietzsche, not exactly an evangelical favorite. The church history guy insisted that I should be able to teach Nietzsche in such a way that I could guarantee that no student would be tempted to become a Nietzschean. Given that I had taken a course with him on Voltaire and Diderot, among others, it struck me that no professor could ever guarantee something like that. Further, I didn't want to be in the business of controlling my students' thoughts. Instead, I was committed to the idea that you should present any philosopher in the fairest possible light, which is what the chair of the department had modeled for me and his other students. Much later, I discovered that the president of the school must have found the church history guy's argument persuasive, since he had criticized me thoroughly while visiting the school where my father taught. I've mentioned that there is a significant difference between continental philosophy and the kind of philosophy done in the English-speaking world called analytic philosophy. Explaining the difference between the two could easily take up an entire book. But in terms of practice, it's safe to say that students tend to resonate more with continental philosophy, since it tends to address very practical problems. Whereas analytic philosophers have only recently begun to talk about more practical questions, you know, like the meaning of life, Continental philosophers have always taken lived experience as the basis for any kind of philosophizing. In other words, it's possible to read many analytic papers and wonder, how does this have to do with actual human existence? The result is that people on these different sides tend to view the people on the other side as not doing serious philosophy. My experience at Leuven had, fortunately, not been that way at all. I had courses with people doing both kinds of philosophy, and they were on an extremely friendly basis with one another. But being the first and only continental philosopher in a department, where I was also the youngest member, was really difficult. I remember having lunch with a woman who taught in the psychology department. She asked the very innocent question, so how's it been in your first couple of years here? I told her about all the ways, some subtle, some less subtle, in which I had been given the message that my colleagues didn't think what I did counted as real philosophy. I told her about my first presentation in the department colloquium in which a colleague had trashed my talk. What was particularly galling was that I was giving a talk on a subject about which I probably knew more about than almost anyone else in the entire philosophical world. That he didn't know anything about what I was talking about didn't prevent him from thinking his opinion was superior to mine. A friend from another department had attended my talk and was shocked that people could treat one another so poorly, especially in what was supposed to be a Christian school. I also mentioned that one of my colleagues had, in a department meeting, said that students shouldn't be able to get through the philosophy major having only taken courses with me, and thus not any serious philosophy courses. When I finished my account, my colleague from the psychology department simply said, so you know what it's like to be a minority in the academic world. I was taken aback. I immediately responded, but I'm a white boy. To which he replied, 
What you've just described is exactly how minorities in the academic world describe their experience. That perspective was totally unexpected, but it put my experience in an entirely different light. To be sure, I wasn't a minority in terms of race or gender, but the treatment I had received was all too similar. Of course, there was the aspect of my sexual orientation. I was still utterly convinced that I was straight. However, sometime in my later 30s, I remember being at my parents' home. The conversation turned to the fact that I was still unmarried. Without going into detail, let's just say that I had had ample opportunities to get married. There had been a number of women who had expressed interest. To be honest, I was still so focused on my career that I just wasn't interested in entertaining any serious prospects for marriage. But then my father started to cry and said something like, Oh, I think my son is gay. I tried to reassure him that this wasn't the case, but that conversation made me feel like it had now become a requirement that I get married. As it turns out, I was part of a book group, and some people in the group thought I would be perfect for one of their friends. That's a story in and of itself, and I will resist telling it here. Instead, for what remains of this podcast, I'd like to focus on my experience of getting tenure, which I did eventually get. To those outside of the academy, let me provide a brief explanation of what tenure is. At most colleges and universities, when you've reached your seven years of teaching, you must go up for tenure. At almost all institutions, getting tenure means you continue to have a job. Not getting tenure usually means that when the current academic year is over, you are unemployed. It's often called up or out. If you don't get tenure at the institution where you teach, you might be able to get an academic job somewhere else. But that's unusual. Instead, it usually means that you need to pick a different career or take whatever job you can find. As to why tenure exists, the usual explanation is that it allows one to publish or speak on topics or take positions that the school where you work might not like. I've heard all the arguments against tenure. The main one goes like this. If someone has tenure, he or she might slack off. That's a legitimate worry, though anyone taking that route would need to be content with being somewhat embarrassed in the academic community and also content to stay at the associate professor level rather than full professor, which usually comes with a substantial pay increase. But the question, is tenure a good idea, is radically different from the practical reality that most schools have tenure, and failing to get it means that you're not just out of a job, but also that you probably need to start all over again. Moving from an academic career to one, say, in business is often a non-starter. One's better off trying to get a job with a nonprofit or some other kind of educational institution. As to the practical matter of getting tenure, whether you're at a teaching institution or a research institution is highly determinative of exactly what you need to do. Roughly put, in a teaching institution, the quality of teaching is the major factor in getting tenure. In a research institution, the quality of your teaching often doesn't really matter very much. You can be a lousy teacher and still get tenure if your publications are good and you've published whatever is considered at your school to be enough. At most schools, the requirements for tenure are reasonably clear to the faculty. The school where I taught definitely qualifies as primarily a teaching institution. The course load for virtually everyone is 12 hours per week. 
those are just the hours you're in the classroom. Then there are all the hours preparing for class, grading, meeting with students. At most institutions, teaching or research, you are required to do some amount of committee work, and you have to attend department meetings, and you have to help out with things in the department. So teaching is just a part of the job. There were two things that made the place where I taught a little different, aside from being evangelical. One was that the school, while it placed the greatest emphasis on teaching, still wanted faculty to publish. These kinds of schools, in multiple ways, are really difficult to work for. You're expected to be a star in the classroom, but then they insist on a certain level of publishing. I had a friend who taught at another evangelical school with the same teaching load, and his take was that everyone thought the teaching load was more than enough, that expecting publications on top of that was just expecting too much. I think that's entirely right. But there was a further problem at the school where I taught. The school resolutely declined to provide any guidance as to what you needed to do to get tenure. They cloaked this abuse, yes, I'm using that term, and I've thought a good deal about choosing it, with the explanation that they didn't want to make any kind of list that was too mechanical. The provost kept referring to a university that required exactly 22 articles. You should know that publishing that many articles in seven years, even at a research institution, is a pretty heavy load. But in the context in which there are no stated requirements, you never know where you stand until the final decision, when, of course, it's too late to have done anything different. I remember an emergency meeting that was set up when three people in one year were not given the approval by the faculty committee entrusted with such things. That may not sound like much, but it was a smaller school, and as a percentage of those going up for tenure that year, it was a big percentage. I eagerly attended this meeting, hoping that there might be something helpful said. I shouldn't have gotten my hopes up. It was the usual bureaucratic mumbo-jumbo. I knew exactly what question I wanted to ask. The school listed four aspects considered for tenure, uh, what they called promotable strengths. And this is the order, teaching, publications, community service, and spiritual modeling. The last bit was about whether you were having a good spiritual impact on students. The third aspect was largely about what committees you'd been on. I'm not usually the guy who has his hand up before the person at the front stops talking, but I viewed this as a very determinative moment. So here was my question. Regarding the four promotable strengths, there are only three logical possibilities. One is that they are listed in order of importance. Another is that while there is an order of importance, the list does not reflect that order. The third possibility is that there is no order of importance. Can you tell me which of those three logical possibilities is the case? Well, given that the school had made a point of not telling faculty what the real criteria were, I shouldn't have been surprised that they simply didn't respond to my question at all. Instead, they went back to the boilerplate talk about different people having different strengths, and these were taken into consideration for promotion and tenure and blah, 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 blah. The effect of that meeting was that junior faculty were even more worried after the meeting than they were before. When you go up for tenure, here's what usually happens. You get a memo from the administration telling you it's time to go up for tenure. Then you're asked to fill out a long, involved form, put together a portfolio of teaching evaluations, provide a CV listing your publications, and also some sample publications. That information is made available to your department colleagues, all of whom need to write a letter about you in which they can recommend that you get tenure or recommend that you 
be denied tenure or just kind of sit on the fence. Normally, you never have any idea of what they've written. The chair of the department reads those letters and then writes one of his or her own. The chair also asks three people from your discipline who teach somewhere else to comment on the quality of your publications. Again, normally you have no idea who these people are and what they end up writing. Just to be clear, to this day, I still have no idea who these people were, and equally I have no idea what my colleagues wrote about me. Then all of that stuff gets sent to the dean, who then writes a letter recommending tenure or recommending denial of tenure or whatever. Then that letter, plus all the other stuff, goes to the next person up the chain, in this case the provost. Then it goes to the president, and eventually it goes to the board of trustees that oversees the school. I provided all of that information because it's crucial to understanding the story. Usually what happens next is that you meet with the provost and president for about an hour. So I turned up expecting exactly such a meeting, except that only the provost was there, along with the dean and the department chair. To say I was utterly shocked would be an understatement. It was a long meeting, so I don't remember exactly everything that was said, but here's a brief version. The provost first told me that he thought it was too early for me to be going up for tenure. He asked, why did you think it was time for you to go up for tenure? I responded, because I got a memo from your office saying that it was time for me to apply for tenure. Then he said, you've only been here for four years. I responded, how did you figure that? His response, because that's what the college catalog says. I responded, have you looked at my file? It will show that I taught here part-time for a year, then another year full-time, and then returned to teach here six years ago. Of course, he didn't have an answer to that response, since what I had said was true, which meant that he now needed to find some other line of argumentation. He then said, well, as your friend, I'd suggest that you wait a couple of years before going up for tenure. You can imagine that identifying himself as my friend didn't go over terribly well with me. So I stated that I had no intention whatsoever of waiting to go up for tenure. I've already told you all the things you need to do to go up for tenure. Waiting two years would have meant that I would have had to do that all over again, which seemed like a pointless exercise. At this point, he suggested that I didn't have enough publications. And fortunately, the dean spoke up saying, well, can you explain what enough would look like? The provost responded that if just one of the things in the pipeline were accepted, that would be sufficient. Here's the thing. When someone says just one more, it's usually not a thought-out position. As it turned out, I had submitted an article to a journal that had sat on it for about a year and a half. And just in case you're wondering, that's not unusual in the academic world. I emailed the editor of the journal and said something like, Without going into detail, it would be extremely helpful if you could encourage the person reviewing my article to make up his or her mind. Within a few days, I had a response that said, well, the reviewer wanted a couple small changes. It was basically accepted. And that's when the provost suddenly moved the line. No, I didn't mean accepted. I meant published. But of course, that's not what he had said. But I'll have to save the rest of the story for the next episode. Thanks for listening to On Becoming. I hope you'll join us next week.